0: First page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one. Now, before we go any farther, I I feel like I just need to ask a, a question. Are you are you really certain that Jesus is really God? I mean, are you absolutely certain? I think, you know, that you need to know that if you're even going semi verbal on a statement like that, that is that is considered a radical claim. You're saying that Jesus, this man, is God. Now, let me just tell you, a lot of folks have no problem when you just say that that Jesus was a good man. In fact, most of the world say, absolutely, good man. In fact, you can go and say Jesus is a good man and he did a lot of good things. He had some really great teaching, really helps us with our moral development. You're not going to find hardly anyone that's going to have any qualms with that whatsoever. But when you say that Jesus is God... You're drawing a line in the sand. You are having this this line that is going to separate humanity when you say that he is God. And that is really the critical question. No one's going to argue whether Jesus is a man. The real question, the most critical question is, is he really God? And you see, if Jesus is really God, that changes everything. You know that, don't you? If Jesus is indeed God, Everything in life and in eternity is different by that one reality. Now, let me just show you how we can truly know that Jesus is indeed God. And I'd like to take you back to the events that took place 2,000 years ago. Specifically, we're going to look at a man who is experiencing the death of a dream. And yet it was through a dream that God was going to bring about a full understanding of the identity of of Jesus Christ. And you can find it in chapter one of Matthew, beginning in verse 18. Let's look at these first couple verses here. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now, it begins by saying in the verse 18 that the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, that word Christ, Jesus' last name is not Christ. Christ, actually, the Greek, the Greek word Christ, Christos, means anointed one. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. And in the, in the biblical culture, in the Jewish culture, they actually anointed three different uh, people that were, had held strong public positions. One of those were kings, prophets, and priests. So like a priest for instance a priest represents man to God. And so a priest would be anointed with oil to mark out that this man had a specific role in their in their community or in their culture. A prophet on the other hand represents God to man. He may be used by God to actually give prophecy, a foretelling of what is to come. Oftentimes times a prophet actually gave uh, spoke of what actually God had already said, and he was actually once again going over and saying, God has said this. And so a man who was a prophet would be anointed with oil, and then there would also be a king who would be a royal ruler of the people. These three offices had, were anointed by oil with oil to identify that these were God's unique, special people who had a special role. But in the case of Jesus, they are waiting for one who is Messiah who actually had all three roles, king, prophet, priest. And so when you see in verse 18, he says the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. He is going to explain how this Messiah came about. Now, he says now in verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. This supernatural work of God in which the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary She actually finds herself conceiving a baby boy in her womb, yet she has never known any man. She is actually betrothed to a man by the name of Joseph. You see that in verse 18. Now, Joseph is described in verse 19 as a righteous man. He is young. He's probably in his early 20s, maybe even a little bit younger. When he's described as a righteous man, he's a man who truly believes in the one true God who's revealed himself, Yahweh. He also is one who desires to follow God's law. God gives his law and he points the way and says this is the way to go. Why, Joseph is a man who actually does that. He walks in the law. He truly knows God. He believes in God and he is a man who follows him. He is considered righteous. He is betrothed, or maybe your Bible say, engaged to this woman, Mary. Now, We need to understand some things about betrothal. In order for this to all make sense, for us to grasp the gravity of the situation of what's taking place, we need to understand what betrothal looked like in the Jewish culture at the time of Mary and Joseph. Now, when we say engagement, we know that that's a serious thing, but we also know that there are a lot of engagements and they end up just kind of breaking off and it just didn't quite work out. Not a big deal. Betrothal was very different than the American idea of engagement. Okay. First of all, it had, it had kind of these different stages. It all began actually with the family. Now, in our culture, it's just kind of a guy likes this gal, gal likes this guy, and they say, hey, you want to get engaged? Sure, they do it, and it's all happy, and the idea is they're going to move on to marriage. Betrothals back in the time of Jesus were actually, they were orchestrated by the families themselves. I mean, think about it. Uh, uh, someone who's got a lot of experience understanding relationships and all that marriage takes Are you going to just leave that up for the kids to figure that out on their own? They're like, no, no. Their culture was mom and dad were very involved in that situation. And there was actually a formal arrangement that took place in the choosing of a spouse. Okay, so there would be this initialized arrangements where when they were very young, could be like 12, 13, they would actually be, as far as the female, the males could be a little older, 14, 15, 16, would be actually matched together, and they would be legally betrothed. Okay? And so what would take place is that there would be this official arrangement that would take place. And this would be a formal one-year legal prenuptial agreement in which there were witnesses that these, this man and this woman were to come together. This would be a one-year period. They would actually even be considered man and wife in every, every respect except this, they didn't actually live together in the same place, okay? The, the woman still stayed with her family. Uh, the man, if he was out on his own, probably unlikely he would be with his parents, but he may be preparing a place to receive his future wife. And they did this for this reason. They had this one-year waiting period to establish the purity of the bride because a woman's virginity, her purity was absolutely critical and of great importance to their society. And so they had this one-year period in which that purity could be established. Okay? Now, if, if this woman were to actually show up to be pregnant during that time, that would be considered adultery. Okay? She would be known that she had been unfaithful. And in the time of Moses, uh, this was dealt with quickly, judiciously. She'd be stoned to death. That was the the punishment for adultery in that time. If uh, the event took place where one of them died in their betrothal period, that one-year period, that other person would be considered a widow or a widower. This is an official legal agreement. And so for one year, uh, a couple that was going to be married lived in this betrothal time where they were considered man and wife, except they didn't live together. And if any one of them should die... Uh, they'd be considered a widower widow. The only way you could actually get out of that arrangement was to have an official divorce decree. you have to have witnesses. It'd be a very big deal. Now, after a whole year then, there would be this official wedding ceremony. It'd be a formal ceremony. And what would take place is the groom and some of his guys, they'd be dressed up in wedding attire. And this whole gang would make their way from uh, his parents' house. They'd kind of travel through the village and they'd go to the house of the bride, okay? And, of course, they knew this was coming and they'd be all ready. They'd, she'd be all decked out in her best clothes and she'd have her little wedding party. They'd come together and then they'd all walk, walk back to the parents' house and they would have this huge celebration, a great supper. At that time, all the people there would, would bless this couple. And the, the father of the bride would actually draw up a legal document indicating that this this was going to be a written marriage contract, that this... Man and this woman had now come together, and they were legally married. After this time of blessing and after this great dinner, this was very different than our society, uh, they had a specially prepared nuptial chamber, okay? And so the gangs all gathered around. Then there was this special chamber, and then this man, his new wife, they would go, they would pray, and then they would actually consummate their marriage. And, that, and this, was, this was something that was celebrated. It was obviously looked forward to by this couple. There, there was actually, they would have a garment that showed blood just to once again prove the purity of this woman. This was very important. In fact, that garment could actually be exhibited for people to see. That's how important purity was to this culture. This is the background that you need to understand when we come to the beginning of the New Testament. Because it was during this one year period of time that Mary is shown to be pregnant. Whoa. Their lives were forever changed by the archangel Gabriel, who makes this announcement that Mary, you are God's chosen one to bear his son. And the Holy Spirit is going to come over you and overshadow you. And you will conceive in your womb a child. And this child will be the Savior of the world. Now, this, this was for Joseph. This was the end and the death of a dream. I mean, it's like the worst thing that could ever happen to him. I mean, Joseph knew all about the quality and the character of Mary. I mean, he was so much and looking forward to the time where they could actually be together as man and wife. They'd be able to live together and spend the rest of their days together. He had dreamed of a family. And now Mary is shown to be pregnant. He knew this was completely out of her character. He knew of her commitment to God, and he felt it deeply. I mean, there'd be tears. His head would be pounding. His gut would just be wrenching. He would probably have times where he would just be convulsing uncontrollably because it's the end of his world. Unless you've ever been in a situation, you probably can't relate. Now, Joseph, he's shaken to the very core of his soul. Had this event taken place in the time of Moses, this would have been the end of Mary. Mary would have been stoned to death. The law called for it. Now, uh, by the time we get to the, the events that we're talking about today, a couple things had taken place here. First of all, there was a laxness in the Jewish uh, theocracy, uh, they were really not in a position to call for the death of people. That was primarily because of the Romans. Roman law now took up precedence. And one of the things the Romans didn't want the Jews to be doing is having the, having the ability to execute capital punishment. And so they were in this situation here where they now, Joseph basically had two choices. First of all, Joseph could make Mary a public example. His, he, would, he would consider Mary his wife. He could make her a public example. She would be charged with adultery. She was obviously, she was pregnant. This would happen in a public court. Everyone would witness this. She would be completely humiliated and shamed. She'd be brought to trial. She would be convicted before everyone. And her reputation would be ruined forever. He would be emancipated from her. And Mary would live uh, really a disastrous, crushed life. Uh, Her opportunity to marry anybody else would probably be out the window. She would be devastated probably for the rest of her life. On the other hand, Joseph had another option. He could, with two or three witnesses, quietly divorce her. He would legally be emancipated, separated from her, and send Mary off to some far distant place where she could secretly bear and raise this child. Now, Joseph had another reason to wanting to divorce Mary. His reputation is on the line. Everybody in the village up there in Nazareth is saying, Joseph, you're the one. His reputation, the reputation of his family is on the line. Everyone would be expecting it. If Joseph doesn't divorce Mary, then he's basically admitting his guilt. Now, they find themselves in this huge predicament, Joseph especially. What we, we don't know exactly what Mary told Joseph when, but he's in great agony. If, if Mary said, let, let me just tell you what happened about this angel and giving this announcement and the, the Holy Spirit coming over her and she's going to conceive, do you really think he's going to believe that? Had there ever been... A child has been born to a virgin that didn't know a man? No. Is that believable? No. And yet he knows Mary. He, he can't believe her story. He's crushed because he wants to marry this woman. And so if he was going to do what is right, what he's going to do in his best interest, he needs to completely separate from her. Now, he obviously comes to the conclusion that he wants to minimize Mary's pain and her shame. He comes to the conclusion that he's going to, you see that in verse 19, he's going to send her away secretly. He's going to send her away, he's going to just get two or three witnesses, legally divorce her, and she goes away. You know, you can find what you're truly made of when you're faced with betrayal. You know, it's kind of like the coldest and the darkest part of our heart is revealed when we've been betrayed or have been truly wronged by someone. And all of us can relate to betrayal. Can we not? I mean, as a pastor, I've dealt with so many people who have experienced the great anguish of life, of being rejected, the bitterness of divorce, being devastated by separation. It comes in all sorts of different places, whether there's formal agreements that are made, People pledging themselves to one another, people that have been married for some time, they just go off. Uh, several years ago, I was meeting with a, a pastor, fairly well known. If I gave, your, gave his name, you'd, you'd probably recognize him. Me and a couple other pastors were meeting with him. He he told me of his, of his experiences in his church where some different people just kind of led like a, a revolt, and they're talking and they're gossiping and they're silent treatment, and it just. It literally, it ripped hundreds of people out of his church. And this man told me, it just about killed me, referring to his heart attack that he had shortly after this event. You know, we all can relate to betrayal, but can we relate to what Joseph was thinking at this time? The hurt in his heart. And so instead of going the public route, the public route, which would probably be expected, and if he pay, paid a, a bride price where he actually gave money to the bride's parents, The only way he could ever recoup that is to actually have this public trial. He opts to try to minimize Mary's shame by deciding to divorce her quietly. He does not want to disgrace her. In fact, what he's doing, he's acting in Mary's best interest. Now, in the midst of this grief, in this situation, we're going to actually see the identity of this child that is now developing in Mary's womb. Now, there are several... There are just several events surrounding the birth of Jesus that demonstrate his deity. And I want you to start seeing them in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The first thing we see here that actually establishes the deity of Jesus is that there are, there's an angel that appears. That word behold, adieu, it's like something out of the ordinary. Matthew likes to use it saying, whoa, wake up. This is completely unusual. This is miraculous in itself that there is this angel that comes and speaks. You see, Mary is incapable of defending herself. And so the Holy Spirit, God himself, actually becomes her defender. The Spirit of God becomes her advocate. And an angel is sent in this dream to express and to explain to Joseph what is taking place. Now, angels are created by God. The the word angel, angelos, means messenger. These are heavenly messengers God uses to bring a specific message. And you're going to find that in this situation here, that angels were used surrounding the birth of Christ. You see an angel that appears here to Joseph as he's sleeping. He's having having a dream, and now this angel breaks in. But you saw an angel come to Mary and explain to her what is about to take place. There was an angel that announced uh, to John the Baptist's dad, Zacharias, what was going to take place in his life. There's an angel, there's angels, but there's one specifically that comes and makes an announcement to the shepherds at the birth of Christ. So we have this angel that comes to Joseph. And he says this, you see this in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Do not be afraid. You see, fear is the enemy Of faith, And what this angel is doing, he's sending a message from God. He's saying, trust me. Trust me. I know this doesn't make sense, but I want you to trust me. I am going to tell you what is truly taking place. Not only do we see that there's this angelic intervention, but we're going to find out that this is a supernatural conception that has taken place. So verse 20, he says, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, this child is not born by natural means, but a supernatural one. It is miraculous. It is unprecedented. And what we have here is we have this angel announcing to Joseph that Mary indeed is bearing a son and she is bearing this child who is God because of the act of the work of God. Now remember last week we saw Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. We traced the human genealogy where where Jesus becomes the legal heir to the throne of David in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. Now we're seeing that Joseph is truly not Jesus' father. His father is God himself. It actually is a denial that Joseph is actually not Jesus' father. And so we have this this amazing event taking place. He says, Mary is bearing a child by the work of the Spirit. Now, how could we explain something like this? How could you explain that Mary actually conceives of a child? Let me just tell you, you can't. There is great mystery to our faith. It's like, how could we explain how God created the universe by speaking it? We are completely incapable of understanding that? Or how could we explain that, that God is three persons and yet in one entity? We can try to, but it's simply beyond our grasp. It doesn't matter how intelligent any of us are. Or that God actually gives a completely new supernatural spiritual nature to those who believe in Christ. Can we fully explain how God does that? No, we can't. I believe when we're in heaven, when we're with the Lord himself, that which we see dimly will now be made clearly and we'll, be, we'll actually know like we're fully known. But at this present time, it's like in Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine, the secret things belong to the Lord and we have to take what he has given us and we trust it and we take it by faith. That is, by the way, faith is. Faith is taking God at his word. And then let me give you one other thing here that points out that Jesus truly is God. He actually has a life-saving mission. If you thought that Joseph is now is going into shock because he hears that Mary is carrying a child that has been actually conceived by the Holy Spirit, this next statement probably just caused him to completely unwind because this is even more radical. Look at verse 21. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. What? You mean Mary's going to bear a child that's going to save his people from their sins? Now, there's some things I want you to point out there. Notice, he says, she will bear a son, but you. This is a second person singular. He's saying, you, Joseph, you're going to name this child. By doing so, what's taking place is that Joseph is actually making this baby a member of his, of his family. The father would actually name the child, and that was to bring about inclusion. That would even be in the case here of like adoption. And in this case, Joseph is going to name the father Jesus. Jesus means Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. Now, Jesus was actually somewhat of a common name at this time because the Jews were waiting for someone who would, yes, emancipate them from the problem of sin. But many Jews wanted someone to emancipate them from the problems of the Romans. You see, the Romans were oppressive, and they wanted God to come and bring about some sort of revolution, some sort of rescue, get Rome off their back, so they could once again live their life the way they, they felt like they were intended, and as God's chosen royal people. Well, when he hears this, that Jesus, he will save his people from their sins, his name actually expresses his work on earth to save and to deliver. His name indicates his role. And so when Joseph hears this, he's like, what? This is the promised one. And the emphasis is, is that this one is going to free us from the penalty of our sin. Friends, this is what we need. Because, you see, humanity, all of us, we're in bondage to sin. We do things that we know are absolutely against the decrees of God. In fact, Sin is to, means literally to miss the mark, to miss the mark of God's glory. And whether it's things we say, things we think, how we act, how we behave, our selfishness, our indifference, our immorality, our arrogance, defiance, all of this is a great offense to God. And we think that we've got political issues. God knows that our much greater issue is that we have been separated from him because of our sin. And that is why he sends Jesus He is going to save his people from their sins. Now, to save surely means to rescue from destruction. And oftentimes when we hear that this person was saved, whether you hear it like there's a physical rescue, someone was saved, they were rescued from drowning, we believe that they were saved from perishing or dying. But we're not only saved uh, from something, we are also saved for someone. God doesn't just simply rescue people from sin and say, like, well, let's try not to do that anymore. Actually, he rescues them to call these people for his own. And so Matthew is going to emphasize this as he goes through the gospel, that these people are not only saved from the penalty of their sin, they're actually saved for God himself. They are God's people. They're going to represent him. They're going to carry his gospel. They are going to make disciples. This is the one, he says, Jesus he will, you will call him the Jesus, for he is going to save his people from their sins. Now, verse 22. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, let me tell you what's going on. Matthew, and as you go through the Gospel of Matthew, look how many times he references an Old Testament prophecy and shows its fulfillment with the coming of Jesus. He actually begins in Matthew chapter 1 by doing just that. There is a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah. You can find it in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And the situation there is that you've got a situation where you have this king, this king by the name of King Ahaz. He's the leader, king of Judah. And he has two major enemies that are coming after him. You have King Rezin who's from Aram, and then you have King Pekah of Israel, the northern kingdom, they have established like this coalition and they are going to come after King Ahaz. They're going to destroy him. And he knows it. And he is extremely fearful. And so Isaiah comes and tells King Ahaz, Isaiah as the prophet says, listen, King Ahaz, God has promised that there is going to be a son of David that will rule forever. And you don't have to worry about these two kings Or their kingdoms. Well, King Ahaz like, I can read the writing on the wall. I can see it. They are about ready to attack and they will destroy me. And then the prophet Isaiah gives this prophecy and says, for you to know for certain that these words are true. Then he gives them this prophecy. Behold, this virgin will be with a child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, I believe there is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Some speculate that Isaiah and his wife had a child, and they're taking the word, uh, the, this idea of virgin, to actually refer to a, just a female. And that did take place sometimes in the Hebrew language. However, I, I take it more of the sense that there was a virgin that was known, perhaps there was a, a woman in the court, that she was going to marry and that she would have a child. This child would be renamed Emmanuel, God with us, to remind King Ahaz and the kingdom that God has never deserted you. But even though that prophecy has a fulfillment, it has its full fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. And that is what Matthew is highlighting. This is a prophecy that, yes, had a historical initial fulfillment, but it specifically points to the coming Messiah, the one who is truly God with us because he is God. And by the way, if you want just a very simple a description of what inspiration looks like. You can find it in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. Who does the speaking? God delivers a message. How does he do, do it? Through the prophet. Spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And so we have this message given. And its fulfillment is in this coming, this coming one, Jesus. Now, you, don't never, you never want to underestimate the critical importance of the virgin birth. God wants it to be crystal clear. This is a cardinal truth or doctrine of the faith that the promised Son of God, the Messiah, is going to be born of a virgin. Ravi Zacharias, in his book, Questions I Would Like to Ask God, gives this recounting of, of this interview with talk show host Larry King. I'm sure you're familiar with him. He had been asked a particular question, and this question was, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? And that is a really good question. You know what his answer was? This is what King replied. He said, I would like to interview Jesus Christ. And the question followed, well, what is it that you would like to ask him? This is what he said. I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. And so it does. When Bobby Zacharias was writing his book, he, he went through a mutual friend to ask, if, ask King if he could actually use this in his book. And King replied, and the answer got back to him, and tell him, I was not being facetious. I mean it. Friends, the virgin birth of the Savior establishes his deity. It's more than just like he had a unique birth. It is established that this is the one true God promised in the Old Testament and he has been delivered to humanity. Why is this why is the miraculous conception and the virgin birth of Jesus so significant? Let me give you three reasons. One, first of all, it's with God as his father, he did not inherit Adam's sin nature. In fact, Jesus is the perfect sinless, spotless lamb. He is the unblemished sacrifice. He actually knows no sin. And hence, he can be a perfect sacrifice for sin. You see, anything less than perfect will not be good enough because all of us are sinners. We need someone who is absolutely perfect and without sin to pay the penalty for us. Let me give you another reason why the virgin birth or the miraculous conception is so important. Because Jesus is God it's in his becoming human, his perfect life, his His sacrificial death. These are actions of God involving himself with humanity. He actually comes to solve our problem. God doesn't just up in heaven say, I love you and I want you to know that. He doesn't do that, nor does he send a servant. just like, go down there and try to take care of this. God personally involves himself and enters into the situation and he does so by God the Son, the eternal Son, entering in humanity and becoming a man and willing to come helplessly like a baby and to have to go through everything that humanity has to offer and yet never sin. You see, God himself became one of us and the only way that God's righteous demands, his just demands towards sin could ever be satisfied is if he paid the penalty for it. God has a perfect standard. He is absolutely holy. And only for, and for perfection to be met, God himself would have to do it. He would be the only one that can appease his own wrath against sin. So you might think of it this way. God the judge passed judgment over sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. And then God the Savior came down to stand between us and actually pay that penalty for us. Let me give you a third reason why the virgin birth and the miraculous conception is so critical. Because Jesus is human. He also becomes a representative for the human race. We have someone who can be our mediator. He can relate to us. He knows our pain, our sorrows. He knows how frail we are. And yet he can represent us to God. He is the perfect God-man, fully God and fully man. You know, there was a guy who was a skeptic, and he loved to antagonize Christians. And there are some folks that just do. They sometimes like to hang out at university campuses. And this one total skeptic used to love to mock about the whole virgin birth deal. And so he found this one Christian, and he said, Hey, if I, if I told you that little baby over there was born but didn't have a human father, would you believe me? You Christians, you believe anything? Would you just believe me if I said that? And the believer said, well, if he lived like Jesus, I would. You see, his birth is just the beginning. It is an announcement that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is here. But his life substantiates this claim and this truth that indeed he is God and he is born of a virgin. Well, let's go back to Joseph. Joseph now awakes He has now been approached by God himself through an angel. He has heard now firsthand of what is taking place. And as a result of this intervention, all of a sudden, he's got a whole new perspective on the reality of the situation. I think he probably went from absolute sorrow and grief to perhaps what we might even call joy and hope. You see, he now sees that indeed God is in it. In fact, God is. Has done this. And now he sees himself. Not only was Mary telling the truth, but he now has the opportunity to actually enter into her pain and become her protector. It's as if he has now the opportunity as the man, as the husband, to defend his wife's honor, to bear her stigma, to be the one person that will stand with her as truly the Son of God is going to make entrance into the humanity. He is. An uncommon man. You know what Joseph acts like? He acts like some of the great uh, figures of the Old Testament. Like, for instance, like Noah. You know, when Noah is building an ark, you know how much heat and ridicule he took? What are you doing? Some flood? God's going to judge the world? You are crazy. I'm sure Joseph felt that and faced that. Remember when Abraham is going to sacrifice his son? He says, hey, listen. God will provide the sacrifice, but I'm going to go through with this. God will do it. Joseph becomes like that. Friends, when you and I are convinced about the truth of Jesus Christ, we can act no differently. You know, we're going to take heat. There's many of us that have. We've become followers of Jesus, and that has meant that our family thinks that that's a huge joke. There's people that have been separated from and culture, other cultures, like in India, you become a follower of Jesus, why don't you just follow him out of the village and out of our family? Because we want nothing to do with you. In some cultures, like if you come from a Muslim culture, they're going to celebrate your death, if not even try to kill you, you follower of Jesus. But you need to know that when you know the truth about who he is and how he came about, you cannot deny it. And come what may, You will represent the truth, and you will do what is right. That's what we have here. And so Joseph, verse 24, awoke from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Abstinence maintains that both Mary and Joseph maintained their ritual purification, especially in the case of Mary, during pregnancy and it ensures that Jesus is indeed born of a virgin. And so Jesus is born and Joseph, the son of David, he's of the royal line, he names him and he called his name. You see that in verse 25? Not Mary. He called his name Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. So you see in Jesus, for in him the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And that is what we need. God doesn't just pull us out of this earth and take us into his presence. Actually, Christ comes into humanity. He enters into history and he is God with us. You and I, we're going through some serious issues sometimes, don't we? We've got all sorts of problems and even rejection. You need to know that We go it not alone. We who believe we have Jesus with us. He is God with us. And, you know, it's interesting. Joseph is called the righteous one. You see that in verse 19? Matthew is setting him up and saying, hey, you want to know what a guy who walks with God looks like? A righteous person looks like? He looks a lot like Joseph. He obeys immediately. He does what he's asked to do, even if he's going to take great grief, which he did. And you know why Joseph could do that? Because he knew the truth. God is with us. And knowing that God is with us, that makes all the difference, friends. No matter what you're facing, what you're going through, even what sin that you've been involved in, knowing that God is with us and that Christ has paid it all, gives you freedom, joy, forgiveness, and life. And there is nothing that we cannot face because we always face it with him. His presence makes the difference. In his book, Deserted by God, with a question mark, Sinclair Ferguson, he's an author and a pastor, writes uh, the story of the first physician to die of the AIDS virus in the United Kingdom. It happened to be a young Christian, and he was a doctor. He had been doing medical research, uh, research in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. And in the last days of his life, as he's about to die, his ability to communicate with his wife, Failed. He struggled with increasing difficulty to try to communicate with her, but he was losing his ability to even do that. A few days before he dies, he writes just one letter on a note tablet, the letter J. And so his wife, going through his you know, medical uh, dictionary with J, giving all these... No, 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 no. And then she says, Are you trying to say Jesus? Jesus, you see, that was the right word and that with him, all things are possible. And with his presence, that makes all the difference. And You see, when we who believe in Jesus and believe that indeed he is God, do you know what happens? We believe that God is with us. And because He is with us, we can enter into a relationship with God Himself. And nothing can separate us from the love of the Father because God became flesh. He had paid the penalty for our sin and He is alive and He gives us true spiritual life to all of us who believe in Him. And so when we come to Christmas, Christmas is the celebration of the coming of the Messiah. And knowing that He is with us, His difference, His difference. His presence makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for the amazing reality that the Lord Jesus entered into humanity and he has given us forgiveness of sins because he is the spotless lamb and you have called us unto yourself by believing in him. So Lord, if there is someone here who has never placed their faith and trust in him, would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know I'm a sinner. You know that I've, I've gone astray. I've done life of my own. I've offended you in so many ways. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in your son. And Father, I receive the newness of life that is found in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. And Father, for all of us, would you keep us mindful, fixed and focused on him who is our life. For we love you and we pray in Jesus name. Amen.